We got a, a letter uh, from Live School this week, actually for William too, uh, a couple days later. And uh, in, the, in that letter were the test results for, I don't know what they call them in Ohio. Is it the Iowa Achievement Test? Or I'm not sure why we would take that in Ohio, but I'm pretty sure that's what I read. All right, yeah. So we got the test results uh, for my daughter. And I remember taking these standardized tests as a kid. Uh, we took, I think they were the Stanford Achievement Tests when I was taking them as a kid. And the one thing I remember most about these tests, see, I'm a competitive kid, all right? So for me, you give me something to do, and I know that you're going to compare my results with every other kid my age in the entire United States. I take it pretty seriously. I want to see how well I can do. I want to see how I stack up against not just my own school, but everybody in the entire nation. And what I remember most, though, is the fact that these tests were timed. And I can remember that almost feeling of, of panic when you would hear the teacher say, five minutes, and you had this list that you hadn't finished yet, all these questions. And I remember just starting to go through the questions quickly. And if there was a question I knew I didn't know, I'd skip right over it, get to one, because I figured the more right answers I could get, the better off I was going to be in the long run. But then she would say, one minute. And again, you, you panic a little bit more. And then it was pencils down. I remember in that time there at the very end, I had to prioritize which questions I was going to take, which ones I was going to attack. There was a sense of urgency, and I wanted to get as much accomplished. I wanted to do as well as I possibly could in the short amount of time that I had left. And with those tests, just like what we're going to see now as we move on in the book of Matthew, we see that a sense of urgency often leads to a greater focus on the essentials. And as we enter into Matthew 21, we're kind of turning a corner here in, in the book of Matthew, and we're beginning what we call now Passion Week. And this is a, a time, a week in the life of Jesus and his disciples that spans Matthew chapter 21 and goes all the way through Matthew chapter 26, where Jesus is handed over uh, to be crucified. And Jesus knows that his earthly ministry is winding down. His earthly ministry prior to his crucifixion is winding down and you have what I think is some of the most interesting accounts in all of the gospels. Some of the most interesting looks at who Jesus is, some of the most interesting looks at the heart of God because he knows that he's got one week now to continue to prepare his disciples for what will come. For the start of the church, for the building of God's kingdom, for everything that will be planted and grow into what we now see today. Jesus is preparing his disciples and he's got this one week left before it's pencils down. The week starts, most of you are familiar with the story, the week starts with him entering into Jerusalem. And as you read through the Gospels, this is where his life has been pointing. This is where everything has been leading up to as Jesus enters into Jerusalem and he enters on the back of a donkey and he enters to the cries of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so really the people think this is their coming king. They think this is their Messiah, their Savior, the one that's going to deliver them from the oppression that they've been under. And then we know that the end of that week is a much different picture. The end of that week, the cries of the people go from Hosanna to crucify him. And you have the account of Jesus being handed over, and Jesus being led to the cross and fulfilling that ultimate purpose that he had come for. Incredible turn of events in the span of just one week. And as we look at some things over the course of the next few weeks, there's three main things that stick out 
three main kind of themes that you see play out throughout this week in each of the Gospels that you read. The first thing is that you see confrontation. And now as we've gone through Matthew, you've seen confrontation with Jesus from day one, really. You've seen confrontation with the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of those that have been appointed as leaders over the nation of Israel. You've seen Jesus butt heads with them as he begins to deconstruct what man has made religion and what man has said a relationship with God looks like. But in this week, you see that confrontation really ramp up and you see some pretty interesting interactions and you also see the interactions with Jesus that push these Pharisees over the edge which lead to his death which lead to his crucifixion Uh, you see confrontation like him entering the temple courts and and driving out those who were changing money those who were taking advantage of those that had come to worship you see that he makes a whip and he drives them out of the courtyard he even has a confrontation uh, with a tree in these chapters it's some pretty interesting stuff And so that's one of the themes that you see throughout this week is confrontation. The other is revelation. During this week, Jesus begins to talk to the disciples in a much different way. Throughout the first part of Matthew, he's talking with the disciples, and he'll give hints, usually, about who he really is and what he's come to do. And he'll talk with with veiled references. But now you get into this week, and the time is short, and Jesus begins to reveal to his disciples, reveal to those who are following him who he is, what he's come to do, the purpose and the plan. And then finally, you also see some core truth. In this week-long period, you see Jesus really boil down his message to the essentials. You see teaching on uh, on servant leadership, teaching on what it means to serve God by serving other people. You have the great commandment, love God, love people. These chapters, 21 through 26, are packed with core truth. And so you have a lot going on in these chapters. But as you read through them, you see this is not a random series of events. These are not chance encounters. You see a very intentional, measured approach that Jesus employs to get the points that he needs to get across to the people that need to know them. And one of the primary ways that he continues to use with each of these themes is the avenue of stories, what we call parables. And we've looked at a couple already. The parables are those stories that Jesus tells that are basic uh, stories that everyone's going to understand. Stories about farming, stories about fishing, things like that. But they have a deeper spiritual meaning to those that are looking for that meaning, to those that want to understand greater. And in these chapters, Jesus tells a series of seven different parables. And over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to look at two of those parables. And these are two in a series of three that he tells that really begin to reveal the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And really begin to get to the heart of the matter. And again, push these Pharisees further down the line towards when they make that ultimate decision that Jesus must be killed and must be gotten rid of. Most of you know that... Uh, my mother wrote a book. Uh, you've heard me talk about that book before. The title of her book is The Sweet Side of Suffering. And I've shared with you that my first reaction to that, when I found out that my mother was going to be published, was not one of joy. Because when you hear your mother, the one that raised you, the one that knows all the stories about you, is writing a book about suffering, maybe I'm just narcissistic, but my first thought was, I have given her plenty of material. 
And I remember asking her before I even opened the book, before I even began to read the book, Mom, what did you say about me in there? And I remember her saying, and then I couldn't decide if I was disappointed or not. I remember her saying, you know what? Not really anything. You were the good son. I think she's probably a little biased. And I think all of us have a different definition of what makes uh, one child good or what makes someone the good son or the good daughter. But in the story that we're going to read this morning, Jesus gives us a picture of the good son. And he gives us a picture of the good son that is a little bit different, I think, than, than how it would have been defined in those days or what the Pharisees would have said uh, makes someone good. He gives us a definitive look at the good son. And it stands in stark contrast to the lives that these Jewish leaders were living and to what they were teaching and what they were training the people in. And he shows us that in God's kingdom, performance takes priority over promise. And we're going to look at what that means. Here's the story. Matthew 28, beginning with verse, or 21, beginning with verse 28. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. All right, again, he's speaking here to the leaders. He's speaking to the Pharisees, to the teachers of the law. And do you hear what he just said to them? He says, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors, again, in that day and age, the worst of the worst, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. And so just like the other parables that we've looked at, there's some different aspects of symbolism here. And there's some things that for the, the Jewish listener at the time, they would have immediately understood. They would have understood that the vineyard is Israel. The work to be done was God's work. The father would be God and the sons would be two different groups of people. The seemingly good son who agrees to work and then does nothing would be those Pharisees, would be the religious Jews who outwardly affirmed a relationship with God and yet inwardly they did nothing to further his kingdom. And the other son would be the sinners, the pagans, according to those teachers of the law. Those who had rejected God in the past, but through that good news of the gospel, as he said, that gospel that John came and presented and that Jesus preached and the disciples preached, they've now repented and they've begun to do the work that God called them to do. And as we read that today, the symbolism is similar. The good son in this story, the one who says he'll go work and then does nothing, would be those who... They can talk a good game when it comes to God and religion. People that are convinced that they have some form of goodness on their own, apart from God, who say they believe in God, and they, they conform outwardly to what it means to have a relationship with God. But they fail to do what God calls them to do. They, they fail to do the work of the kingdom. This is cultural Christianity. 
lacking a real relationship. It's saying that I want God to be part of my life, not I want God to be the center of my life. I want God to be everything in my life. The rebellious sons are those who have turned from God. Those who have rejected him at various points in their lives, but have had a heart change. They've seen the mistakes they've made. They've turned away from those things. This is the the heart change that Jesus preaches about for his entire ministry. This is the heart change that as you read through the letters of Paul and Peter and others, this is the theme that goes throughout the entire New Testament that you see pieces of throughout the Old Testament where God is saying, look, I'm not interested in the outside. I'm not interested in what you say. I'm interested in the inside. What happens on the inside, the change that takes place. And that's what you see with this rebellious son. You see a change in his life. Coming to that point where they acknowledge that God's ways are the right ways and being willing to turn and go and do what God has called you to do. The intent of Christ here, the purpose of the teaching, the heart of the story here, the big idea It's to impress upon the disciples that a relationship with God is about more than just words. That a relationship with God is about performance. It's about following through. It's about obedience rather than just promise. Again, not about the outside, but about what's going on in the inside. And so there's a few things I want to pull out of this story. The first thing that you see in the story here is the request. And we won't spend a lot of time here. The request is pretty simple. The request from fathers hasn't changed much over the last 2,000 years. Go get a job. (laughs) Go work. All right, fathers are still saying that to their kids today. Today it would be turn off Fortnite and go mow the yard or something like that. But the father says to each of the sons, he says, go work in the vineyard. Go get something done. And what you see here is the same exact call that we looked at just a few weeks ago. God's call is to go into the vineyard. God's call is to go work. Do the work of the kingdom. Do the work of the harvest. Do the work of watering the seeds that have been planted. Planting the seeds where none have been planted. Harvesting where a harvest is ready. And you see that it's consistent and you see that it's constant. He gives the same command to both sons. And so for us today, the request is exactly the same. Do kingdom work. What are you doing in your life to further the kingdom of God? What are you investing in in your life to further the kingdom of God? Who are you investing in in your life to further the kingdom of God? God's call is an active one. Oftentimes for us, the work can seem to be something that we don't want to do, or we have all those different excuses. We're, we're too shy to talk to that person about Jesus. We're, we're too busy. We can't fit it into our schedule. We're too preoccupied with other things. The reality is God's call doesn't always come at the most convenient time for us. But the call doesn't change. Go into the fields and do the work of the kingdom. And then things get interesting. You see the responses of the two sons. And you see that each of these sons is marked by three things. And in the response of the first son, you see that the mark of the first son starts with rebellion. The response of this first son is nothing short of open rebellion. And this is another one of those stories where the translation from Greek to English doesn't do us uh, justice, probably, to get some of the emotion and and some of the impact 
that the early Jewish readers, early Jewish listeners would have gotten from this story. But the words that are recorded here for us, the Greek words that are recorded here for us, are as definite and resolute a response as there possibly can be. In fact, this is the only place in Scripture where you see these two Greek words put together. There's no precedence in the Bible for such a short, sharp reply within the same sentence. He didn't care to argue. He didn't care to get further details about the job. He didn't care to explain his response. And it was evident he wasn't going to waste any time even considering it. The message was clear. I don't care. Don't bother me. Get someone else. This is absolute open rebellion. For parents, this is the same thing you get with your two-year-olds. This is the hands on the hips, or maybe it was just my two-year-olds, but it's the hands on the hips and the stomping of the foot and the shaking of the head with the no, where they leave absolutely no doubt as to what they feel about things and what's going on in their head. This is the response that you get from the first son. Now, there may be some today that are in this category still. There may be some today that that don't yet have a relationship with God, where when it comes to the truth of the gospel, when it comes to the hope of the gospel, the fact that we who were sinners could be brought near in a relationship with God, we have openly said, no, that's not for me. I don't want anything to do with that. But the reality is that at one point in our lives, this described all of us. All of us fell into this category. Colossians 1.21 says, You who were once so far away from God, you were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Every one of us at one point in our lives was separated from a relationship with God. Because of the reality that we're born into sin, we are born into that separation. And so this rebellious son, at at one point in all of our lives, describes us. So the first mark of this son is rebellion. The second mark, though, is repentance. Repentance. Repentance is, is not just being sorry about something. Repentance is more of, of a heart change. All of us have been told by someone in our lives that they're sorry, that you can look right at them, you can see from their body language, you can see they're not. It's just words. They may be sorry they got caught. They may be sorry about the consequences that they're now going through, but they're not really sorry about what happened. Repentance isn't like that. Repentance isn't simply feeling bad about something. Repentance is inner anguish over our sin. It's inner anguish over the state of our hearts before a holy God. It's a 180 degree turn where we stop, we turn around, and we head the other direction. And so this son had a change of heart. This son expresses remorse for what he's done. And again, this is one where the Greek translation doesn't quite do it justice. The Greek translate this, not just changed his mind. The Greek really means regretted, repented. It's the same word that Matthew used when he talks a little bit later about Judas. When Judas betrayed Jesus, and then we're told that he repented. We're told that he had remorse. We're told that he regretted. It's a deep sense of anguish over what's happened. And so the first son comes to the point where he wished his rebellion had never happened. And he changes, not just his mind, but his heart changes, and he goes and he does what's been asked of him. 
Repentance is a huge part of this parable because repentance is what was not seen at any point in the lives of those Pharisees and in the lives of those teachers of law, those who were leading the nation of Israel. This was a huge part of what was missing because for them, they had all of the outer trappings, all of the outer look of holiness. And yet their hearts were a mess, as Jesus pointed out time and time again. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this about repentance. For God can use sorrow in our lives to help us turn away from sin and seek salvation. We will never regret that kind of sorrow. But sorrow without repentance is the kind that results in death. We're told lack of repentance leads to death. But then listen to how it continues. You were once so far away from God. I'm sorry, now we're back in Colossians 1, which we read a moment ago. You were once so far away from God, you were his enemy, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet, now he has brought you back as his friends. He has done this through his death on the cross in his own human body. As a result, he has brought you into the very presence of God, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him. That's the end result of repentance. The absence of repentance is death. The absence of repentance is lack of relationship with God. The end result of repentance is life. And that in abundance. Repentance leads to forgiveness. And forgiveness allows us who were once openly rebellious and sinful to stand before God as holy and as clean and pure. And he's able to use us then to build his kingdom. The third thing, and this is important, the third thing that marks this son You have rebellion, and then you see repentance. But then you see the result of repentance, and that is obedience. Obedience is the end result of repentance. You cannot be repentant and not change. You can be sorry and not change, but repentance leads to action. Paul says in Acts 26.20, I preached first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, throughout all Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that all must repent of their sins and turn to God, and prove they have changed by the good things that they do. The proof of repentance is in our actions. All right? And again, just to be clear, it's not our actions that save us. What saves us is faith alone in Jesus Christ. But that repentance, that heart change, that coming to that place where we bowed down before the Lord and said, I'm yours, I'll follow wherever you call me to go, I'll do whatever you ask me to do, I will obey, that is repentance. The second son is marked by some very different things. The second son, first is marked by agreement. And so again, if you take this story at the very beginning, you have one son that says, absolutely not. And you have another son that says, yes, sir. And you look at the beginning of the story and you're going, wow, I know which one, I know which one the good one is. I know which one Jesus is going to point out as the, the one that did things the right way. And so you have that agreement at the beginning. In fact, he gives a response that most of us would probably pass out if we heard from our kids. Most of the time when I say to my kids, hey, I want you to go clean your room. Yes, sir, is not the immediate response that I get. If I say, hey, I need you to go take out the trash, it's not always yes, sir. I need you to go do the litter, that's never yes, sir. But this son immediately, yeah, dad, I'll do it, yes, sir. Throws that sir in there just for good measure. 
Although, unfortunately, now with this one, it all begins to go downhill. Whereas with the first son, he immediately is rebellious, but then you see the change. With this son, he agrees, and then you see he's marked by inactivity. He agrees, but nothing happens. He accepts that call. He says, I'll do it. Yes, sir. And then there's no activity on his part. And so on the surface, he may look good on the outside. He may look like there were no issues there, nothing to repent of, not like that rebellious brother of his. But on the inside, he's just as sinful. And it keeps him from being effective for the kingdom. Unfortunately, today, I think there's far too many Christians that fall into this category. We come to church, we sing our songs, we shake our hands, we bring our dish to pass. But when God says, work in my field, what have we done with that? What's our activity been? What's our response been to that call to be active, that call to be spreading the love of God to a world that desperately needs it? A relationship with God is active. A relationship with God requires commitment to him. It requires commitment to his body, his bride, the church. It requires stepping out. It requires being uncomfortable at times. God's call is not a call to sit and look good. It's a call to be dirty and messy and to be involved in the lives of the people that God puts in our path. And if our relationship with our Father is defined by inactivity, then this story ought to make us a little bit uncomfortable, as it would of those original listeners, as it would of those Pharisees, those Sadducees. So the second son is marked by agreement, then he's marked by inactivity, which ultimately leaves the third mark. It's disobedience. Doing nothing is a sin in the same way that openly rebelling is. Conforming to what God expects outwardly while refusing to change inwardly is empty, and it's hollow, and it doesn't please God. I remember talking to my friend years ago. His kids are older now, but I remember with his first child, he told me the story. He was driving with his first kid, and somehow his kid, about three years old, got out of the car seat, had unbuckled himself, and was standing up on the car seat. Very proud of himself. And my friend did what any dad would do. Started to yell at the kid to get back down, sit back down, and get in the car seat. And he uh, threatened him, I'm sure, on several levels, until finally the kid sat down and got his arms back in the buckles. And my friend said he heard a mutter under his breath, I'm still standing on the inside. <laughs> Is that obedience? Is that obedience? No. It's conforming outwardly and rebelling inwardly. It was disobedience. In the same way, the second son conformed on the outside, agreed on the outside, agreed on the surface, but his heart rebelled and he remained inactive. And because of that disobedience, the work never got done. Two very different responses. And you get two very different results. The results are clear and simple. Repentance led to results. Repentance led to the work getting done. Repentance led to the job being done. Christ said that those who are like this son, the first son, the rebellious son, 
These are the ones that when they're confronted with the church, these are, or with the truth, they respond. These are the ones that are entering the kingdom of God ahead of those who have that outward sign of godliness. Repentance leads to results. Lip service led to unfinished work. Lip service led to unfinished work. And when you consider that the work that's being talked about here, what the parable is getting at here, the work directly influences the eternity of those around us. It's a pretty sobering thought. It's something that needs to be taken very seriously. Yet even that reality, we don't let our minds go there. We don't want our minds to go there. That reality isn't enough for some of us to change our focus from what we look like on the outside or what ministry looks like on the outside to whether or not our hearts are clean, to whether or not we're obeying, to whether or not we're doing what God has called us to do and the work that he's called us to get done. So as we close, I just want to look at three quick things by way of, of application here for this. The first thing that we have to understand as we look at a story like this is that there's always hope. There's always hope. Again, you look at the start of this story and you would have written off that first son. But there's always hope. God is not looking for those that are perfect God is not looking for those that have everything together. He's not asking uh, for something that's unattainable. He simply wants our heart, and he simply wants us to obey his call. No matter what our lives have been marked with to this point, no matter where we've gone, no matter what we've done, there's always the hope of forgiveness that comes with repentance. And Scripture says we only have to ask for it. And then be willing to join the others in the field. The second thing that comes out of this that we've got to understand in our own lives is that repentance is our only right response to sin. Repentance is our only right response to sin. We as a nation, we as a collective church in the United States have become far too comfortable with so many sins. Repentance is our only right response to sin. Having remorse over the sin in our lives and being willing to turn and go the other direction. And then finally, obedience is shown through our actions. This is a huge one. Obedience is shown through our actions. We're told later in the New Testament, let us not love nearly by the things that we say. We show it by the things that we do. It's about action. Some of us say yes in church every week. We say yes in Bible study. We say yes in prayer meetings and small groups. But we become like those Pharisees. We look spotless on the outside. But just like my friend's son in the car, we're still standing on the inside. And we say no by our lack of actions in response to God's call. Jesus puts it as simply as you can in John chapter 14. He says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. It's that simple. He wants our hearts he wants our obedience. If the external is not flowing from what's going on internally, our lives are not marked by the obedience that God calls us to, then actually we're just playing at religion. 
We're just missing out on the relationship that God so deeply desires to have with us. And this story, if anything, gives us hope that God can still use us despite our flaws, despite our mistakes, as long as we're willing to repent and turn to God in obedience. In these next few weeks, as we wrap up the book of Matthew, I want you to pay very close attention to the words that Christ speaks. And I want you to pay very close attention to the things that he does. And over these next few weeks, I want to encourage you to spend some time on your own in the book of Matthew. We're not going to be hitting every single passage, every single verse. So look at it uh, for yourselves. But as his earthly ministry here is winding down, Jesus is getting right to the point. And every word and every action contains truth that will transform, that should transform, the ways that we think and the ways that we live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, as always, for the teaching that you give us in your word. Lord, we thank you for the truth that you take the rebellious, you take the imperfect, you take us whose hearts were hard, who were far away, and through the redeeming work of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, You transform us into sons and daughters of God. You transform us into those who are able to respond to your call, able to work, and able to see growth for your kingdom. Lord, I pray over these next few weeks as we get into these events during Passion Week, Lord, I pray that you would open up our minds. I pray that you would open our hearts to hear what it is that you're saying to us. And Lord, I pray that our response would simply be to obey. That we would begin to go and do the work you've set out for us. That we would begin to go and build those relationships that you've laid in front of us. We would begin to go and sow the seeds of love and sow the seeds of a relationship with Jesus Christ looking for those whose hearts you've already prepared, knowing that eternity is at stake. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would take what we've looked at today, take this parable, take these verses, and I pray that your spirit would do the work that only he can do, and that you would help us to grow and look more and more like Christ. Amen.